0: Hello there and welcome into another edition of The Intersection with conversation about a variety of topics including news, information, and lifestyles approached from a Christian worldview perspective. On this week's edition of the podcast, I want to review what I call the top 10 topics of 2018, including stories impacting the Christian community, as I highlight on my weekly blog post at the 3 at meetinghouseonline.info, and through conversations with a variety of guests on the Meeting House radio program. Coming up, you'll hear content related to a Christian worldview perspective on matters of sexuality, especially pertaining to government policies, as well as the 2018 election. Also, religious liberty was a big issue again during 2018. You'll be hearing about that topic. And some high-profile cases of Christian persecution were resolved with the release of people who had been in prison. Plus, a number of Christian leaders were involved in putting together a statement attempting to clarify how the Bible informs matters of justice So please stay tuned for this year's edition of the top 10 topics of 2018 here on the Intersection Podcast. Well, in the number 10 position, last year, the U.S. military made attempts to arrive on a policy governing transgender individuals serving in the armed forces. The president had adopted a policy, but federal district courts had blocked it from going into effect, prompting action by the Department of Justice to appeal directly to the U.S. Supreme Court. Peter Sprigg of the Family Research Council joined me in April to talk about the transgender policy as it was proposed. Here now is some material from that conversation.
1: The uh, new policy proposed by the administration, the Trump administration, would um, reverse the uh, policy that was uh, brought in under the Obama administration, but it would not take us all the way back to what the policy was before. Uh, and so it does get a little bit, a uh, little bit complicated because um, the the new policy updates uh, the classification of transgender people on the basis of um, the uh, latest version of the DSM, which is the manual published by the American Psychiatric Association, the manual of um, of uh, mental disorders, and um, they're making a distinction now between. People who uh, who have what they call gender incongruity, uh, which is that their mind, they feel in their mind like they're a different sex from the from their actual biological sex, and gender dysphoria, which is the only aspect of this that is considered a mental disorder now by the APA. Uh, gender dysphoria implies that you have some sort of subjective dis- distress about this gender incongruity. Um, so. Essentially, under the new policy, people who are diagnosed with gender dysphoria or who undergo a gender transition, uh, once this policy goes into effect, would no longer be allowed to serve um, in the military. But those who, um, uh, who may experience this gender incongruity mentally but do not have a diagnosis and, are not, and do not attempt to actually transition would be allowed to serve, but they would have to serve in accordance with their biological sex uh... so mm. that's really which is really not what the transgender right, activists right. are looking for some of the things we learned from this latest report i mean we're talking about a 44 page report so it had a lot of information and documentation and um... what a, a lot of people may not realize is that there are the, the reasons why transgender people were um... not permitted to uh, serve were specifically health related they were related to mental health and to physical health. And um, the, this report now gives us an update with very specific data on 937 people who have been diagnosed with gender, service members who have been diagnosed with gender dysphoria since January 1st, 2016, under the Obama policy. And they some of the things that they reported, for example, are that this population has utilized mental health services as, at a rate Uh, 10 times higher than other service members, and that the the cost, the medical cost uh, uh, for treating them is already um, uh, three times higher than that of other service members.
0: And it does seem like that Jim Mattis has really bought into those principles, even though, admittedly, it was a rough process at the very beginning.
1: Yes, I, I think that uh, to be honest, when when this process began, uh, we were not certain where Secretary Mattis stood on this issue, yes. and we were not certain what um, what would come out of the process that he undertook in the Pentagon. And well, we did have some concern that perhaps um, what he proposed would not would not be consistent with um, with what. Uh, President Trump had laid out uh, in his instructions to him. And so I, I would say that we were, uh, for the most part, pleasantly surprised uh, by how consistent uh, this latest report was with the principles that the president set out last year. And um, as I said, there there are um, exceptions um rooted in part based on the accepting this definition, this sort of formal definition of gender dysphoria, and in part uh, uh, based on this grandfathering in of the people who have already uh, begun a transition under the previous policy. Um, and those are maybe not uh, ideal from our perspective, uh, but um, overall the fact that uh, the, the military, for example, going forward will not, not pay for Hormone th- we presume we'll not pay for hormone therapy or gender reassignment surgery for any more soldiers once this takes effect um, that's, that's, that, and, and will not permit people who have gender dysphoria or a gender transition to remain, uh, again, still starting from the point that this
2: um, uh, goes into effect.
0: Peter Sprigg of Family Research Council here on the Intersection podcast with some comments relative to the number 10 topic of 2018, the military's transgender policy. On to number nine now. It appeared that a bill in California which could have resulted in the banning of counseling for people seeking to overcome unwanted same-sex attraction and selling resources to that end was on its way to passage in the state. At the last minute, the assembly sponsor of the bill removed it from consideration. I had a conversation with Ann Polk of Restored Hope Network about that particular bill, AB 2943. Here are some of her comments.
3: AB 2943 prohibits not just counseling—that's the language throughout the bill—but it actually has a really broad application uh, in the bill, in the in the restriction in the fraud act. It claims that life change out of homosexuality is a fraud, and that you can charge whoever's helping you with materials or counseling or resources um, with fraud and sue them in court. Um, so we're talking about a lot of litigation. Uh, one of the of the assembly persons in the first committee said well this is this is going into the statute that's used like the kitchen sink people sue from this all the time i thought that was kind of fascinating she admitted that right in how in the assembly committee but the truth of the matter is it would subject anyone who provides materials to the state of california residents to potential of lawsuits and that would include out of state um, groups it would include definitely restored hope network we produce documentaries books many of us are authors um, and other materials including online discipleship support where there's donations out of state Um, that kind of thing there are lots of different places where money changes hands and that would subject anyone to a potential lawsuit in the state of california beyond us there are Many, many different ministries that produce materials that go into the state of California, marriage retreats uh, by Family Life Today, or pure, uh, pure Passport to Purity materials that cover homosexuality from a biblical standpoint would come under scrutiny and potentially be sued. Um, June Hunt, lovely, from uh, Dallas, Texas, Hope for the Heart, she provides many materials for people struggling with all sorts of things. From a biblical counseling perspective, she could be sued or their ministry could be sued if it's sent into California and the sales made there. Amazon.com, Barnes & Noble, ChristianBook.com, Airwave, uh, any advertising on the airwaves or for any other medium in the state of California could subject you to a suit. So there are all sorts of problems, and what it does is it has a chilling effect on free speech, first and foremost, and also religious freedom. So the person who's struggling with their uh, gender identity but wants to address it in a biblical way will be restricted from getting that information because of the potential for lawsuits. Um, Same thing for someone dealing with unwanted same-sex attraction, that person will be restricted from getting Uh, any care in the direction and the goal that they want. It's a matter of embracing his ways after experiencing the kindness and mercy and love of God. It's an overwhelming response of, I trust you because you have loved me when I was unlovable. And at that point, the most amazing thing happens. salvation occurs and transformation of the soul begins. And the person becomes awakened to things that don't please God, and and begins to want to work on those things. And when that happens, it's really helpful to have people alongside of you who've been through the process also, who can encourage you in the next step or whatever. And that that actually is essentially counseling on a lay, a professional, or a pastoral care level from a biblical standpoint, and that's what Restored Hope does. Mm. We assist in cooperating with the Holy Spirit, working in a person's life to transform them into his own image. And that may or may not mean marriage. Um, It generally means a lessening of homosexual desire, though some people continue to struggle. But it also involves understanding God's design for sexuality and embracing that, whether or not struggles continue or not. Um, What we've seen out of some ministries is that 82% of the people Um, Even if they continue to struggle to some degree, a portion of those do, continue to embrace God's design for gender and sexuality after going through a year of, of pastoral care. And so once you understand God's purpose for sexuality and your role in that picture, it's easier to figure out how to embrace that. And that's the very process they want to shut down. They want to shut down information and help for those who are seeking it.
0: And Polk of Restored Hope Network here on The Intersection, commenting on the number nine story of 2018 involving AB 2943 in California. Number eight topic of 2018, Christians as well as conservatives posting comments consistent with a Christian perspective faced further incidences of censorship during 2018. At the National Religious Broadcasters Convention in Nashville, the organization announced the formation of Internet Freedom Watch, designed to call attention to such instances. NRB warned tech companies about its desire to have government hearings on these matters if changes did not occur. I had the opportunity to talk with someone who had faced some censorship at the hands of Facebook. He is Phil Robertson of Duck Dynasty as well as the Blaze TV program In the Woods with Phil. Here now is Phil Robertson.
4: One of the problems we have is if you show fish being skinned on Facebook, mm-hmm. you're violent. That's a too violent of content. <laughs> this started all about four or five, all oh, three months ago back during duck season. First, they said it was too violent to show a duck being plucked and, uh, and... T- chopping the head and the feet off and gutting the duck and then making a duck gumbo. I was showing people how to make a duck gumbo. You have to go get your ducks. By the way, ducks are in the world. They are number, the number one bird for food consumption for the world. Ducks are. They're ahead no of kidding. chickens or turkeys. So it's pretty amazing. So wow. I, we did a segment, filmed the duck being plucked, and when I cleaned the ducks, I came over here, and then they finished it up by watching me show them how to make a gumbo. Well, Zuckerberg and his team, they axed that, <clears throat> too violent. So about a week or ten days ago, they showed me skinning catfish, taking the skin off catfish, and we were going to have a fish fry, showed them how to do that, and they balked at that too. Now, now in the last three days, Zuckerberg and his team because I, I I went on Facebook and gave him about a 15-minute <laughs> speech <laughs> on on what uh, depriving us of our abridging uh, freedom of speech is all about. So they offered me an apology, and they apologized uh-huh. for, for saying it was too violent. So they did apologize about it. But throughout the country, Bob, what they're doing, it really wasn't that that they were after. They right. know that I, that I point people to Jesus and I preach the gospel. That's what they're really after. The film crew came down from the CR, our production crew, and I sat on the porch, and I hmm. basically just told Zuckerberg personally Now whether they got it to him personally, I warned him to. I basically told him I loved him, but he was off base and that you can't go around in a bridge deprive limit in scope or content. A bridge means you cannot you cannot thwart the transfer of information, the freedom we have to speak freely, speak our mind. You cannot mess with that. I basically told him that. So I chided him just a little bit and I invited him down. I said, Why don't you fly down and we'll have a Bible study and we'll we'll feed you something that we catch off the river out right here in the woods. And I said, we get to know each other. I said, you just need to lighten up because the government is fixed to come down on y'all for the way you're operating. You just can't do that. Hey. You are know, selling people's information to other people and all that, the privacy thing. I don't care what they do with the information I give them at all. I'm not worried about privacy. I'll just let everybody know and say, hey, you take this information I'm giving you and give it to anybody. I don't care. But uh, what I do care about is we're not being able to openly speak about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and biblical things.
0: Well, tell me about the show. It's called In the Woods with Phil. What do you do there?
4: Everything from, <laughs> from how to raise godly children. I raise four sons, take the scriptures, teach them to obey their parents, to respect their elders, to obey law enforcement, to salute the flag, to stand with your hand on your heart, you, you, we teach. I go through a series of. You begin where they're just small children crawling around on the floor. You begin to teach them discipline, so they're to be taught. We we delve with that. They're to be uh, rebuked, corrected, and trained in righteousness. How to be do what's right, love God, love your neighbor. And I said, if we if we keep going with this thing. We've tried the no-God thing from the 60 the Supreme Court decisions. They took prayer out of our schools, and then they took the Scriptures out of our schools. You can't read a Bible in any institution of learning, and now only the theory of evolution can be taught. No Bibles anywhere, so we ran God out of the school system. He's been out of Hollywood for years. And the news media have run him out of there. The Democratic Party, they booed him out on one of these couple of cycles ago. No more God in their platform. So we've tried the no God thing, Bob, for about 60 years. My question to America is, how's that going for us?
0: Mm, (laughs) How's it working for us?
4: It's pathetic to watch.
0: Bill Robertson here on The Intersection. Comments relative to the number eight story of 2018, Internet censorship of Christian viewpoints. Well, let's move on now to the number seven topic. One of the chief emerging stories out of the 2018 midterm elections, of course, was the shift of leadership of the U.S. House of Representatives from Republican to Democrat. Also notable was the addition of Republican seats in the U.S. Senate, which has definite implications for the appointment of more conservative pro-life judges to the federal bench. Also, two states... Alabama and West Virginia passed pro-life amendments to their state constitutions. I had the opportunity to talk with Bruce House Connect, a focus on the family. Here are some of his comments.
5: We see it uh, as as a continuation on the judges side of uh, the Senate being able to confirm good judges. Uh, we We won't see any uh, squishy uh, Republican votes threatening. Uh, good judges like we sort of did uh, with the Kavanaugh confirmation hearings recently uh, so that that's a very important development with the Democrats coming out ahead in the in the house that probably uh, does not bode well for getting any kind of legislation passed that social conservatives want to see whether it's pro-life or defunding Planned Parenthood uh, religious freedom you name it the, there's probably going to be a stalemate Uh, With any kind of agenda that social conservatives would be hoping for.
0: You look at the makeup, the philosophical makeup of the federal judiciary, how it's changed already, not just because you've got two constitutionalist judges that have been appointed to the U.S. Supreme Court in Neil Gorsuch and Brett Kavanaugh, but you also have a number of other federal appeals court judges and district judges that have been placed on the federal judiciary. So the the makeup of the federal judiciary already just in the last two years, because the responsibility to appoint those judges falls on the president with confirmation by the Senate. So moving forward with the Senate in Republican hands, you could see more of the same with respect to the federal judiciary.
5: Yeah. You know, I don't think people understand how quickly the judiciary turns over with retirements and resign resignations and things like that. There are uh, approximately 850 federal judges in the federal system. And the president nominates all of those uh, as as those vacancies come up. And already in the two years uh, that President Trump has been in office, he's had 84 federal judges confirmed. Um, That's amazing for uh, two years. And I've seen reports that uh, Senator McConnell as the majority leader in the Senate has plans to uh bring another 60 uh candidates nominees wow. before the Senate by the end of the year. So that's uh that's a record breaking pace uh and it it just that still leaves many vacancies to be appointed and confirmed. So uh I think Yes, we're, we're seeing a definite impact uh, on the courts, and it doesn't take long if it's, if for a president, especially a two-term president, to swing the, uh, the majority, so to speak, on each circuit, of at least at the appellate court level, so that uh, judges, you know, when you have panels of three judges or you have an en banc panel of 12 or 20 judges listening to a, an important case, when you have most of them as constitutionalists, uh, strict constructionists, Um, you're going to have favorable types of decisions for those of us who revere the Constitution and don't like to see their judges make up laws from the bench.
0: There continues to be quite a bit of analysis with respect to the Kavanaugh hearings and the effect on this election, because when you looked at the polling data, it looked like, and of course you hear that whole phrase of the blue wave, and you know, it really looked like that the Democrats were going to do very well in taking the House and perhaps taking the Senate. The Brett Kavanaugh hearings really kind of changed the whole makeup of that, didn't they?
5: I think so. I think uh, as people watched in some of these red states with some of these uh, uh, Democratic senators, and they saw the treatment that Kavanaugh received uh, at the hands of the Senate Judiciary Committee, Democrats and and the democrats in general i think they really i really held that against them in in those uh, four races and apparently uh tester senator tester in in montana is a similar a similar case he's a, a democratic senator in a red state and he barely squeaked through uh this and against a, a challenger a, a republican challenger and that's probably attributable also to the kavanaugh effect so um, I think Americans did not look kindly on the the Senate's treatment of Kavanaugh. And that should hopefully send a message to all parties uh, in future nominees.
0: Bruce House Connect to focus on the family comments on election 2018 and the statements made by pro-life voters, the number seven topic of 2018. The Intersection podcast continues the number six topic Christians on campuses experiencing religious liberty suppression throughout the year. There were stories of students and faculty who found that their rights to express themselves consistent with their deeply held religious beliefs were coming under fire. A couple of examples. Isabella Chow of the University of California at Berkeley, a student senator, found that her position on a particular vote in the student government, a vote rooted in her biblical view of sexuality, had yielded strong opposition. Also, the organization InterVarsity at Knox College in Illinois faced removal from campus because of its views consistent with a Christian sexual perspective. Here now from a conversation on the Meeting House program is UC Berkeley student senator, Isabella Chow.
6: Title IX deals with sexual assault on campuses and this bill was largely symbolic and it uh, wanted to put forth the stance uh, you know, of the Associated Students of the University of California and essentially it was opposing a certain clause in the Department of Education's proposed changes um, which would define a person's gender as their biological sex. And for me, most of that bill i actually agreed with because most of that bill was just, you know, very supportive language that opposed discrimination and harassment against lgbtq individuals and specifically transgender individuals. and as a christian, i have absolutely no problem advocating for, you know, freedom from discrimination and harassment for anyone, and especially people who, you know, are more marginalized in this society. but where that bill crossed the line for me was that certain clauses in the bill that I had to vote for asked me to promote certain organizations like the Queer Alliance Resource Center here on campus, whose primary purpose is to promote an LGBTQ identity and lifestyle. And to me, promoting that identity and lifestyle is very different from saying that every person, and especially LGBTQ individuals, should have basic human rights. The reaction that I got was, very unexpected the backlash was very swift um, to the extent that over the next three days we had multiple meetings and i was eventually told you either have to fully support this bill and fully affirm the lgbtq identity or you have to leave the party and in my conscience and before god and before my community i couldn't say that this was something i could fully support and so um, the next night during voting um right after the vote Student Action released their press statement disaffiliating with me, and another senator who sponsored the bill that I abstained from also released a statement essentially um, quoting very specific parts of what I said on the Senate floor and calling me a bigot a hater, transphobic, and queerphobic senator.
0: And so you were disassociated, disavowed, if you will, as it's been reported by your party that you had run with for this Senate position, but you were not removed from your Senate position. And really, you took that stand, I understand, because of your, you had basically set yourself up and you'd actually set it on the front end of our conversation as being a voice for the Christians on campus at UC Berkeley. So because of mm-hmm. the way that you had presented yourself, it would be actually, of course, first of all, because of your adherence to biblical truth, but also because of promises made to your constituents on campus that this is something that would be inconsistent with what they had entrusted you to do, right?
6: Yes, for sure. And I actually dialogued with multiple campus leaders, um, alumni, and even pastors since last semester about, you know, the LGBTQ issue in general and about this, these specific bills. And yeah, I wanted to stay true to my word about, you know, what I would vote for and what I believed and to represent my community, the Christian community here well.
0: So something that, that you mentioned earlier, and I said we'd come back to it, with respect to your view of those who claim to be LGBTQ on campus and your beliefs as a Christian. You had you'd been quoted on the campus reform website as saying that this misunderstanding really comes out of that that tension because we are called to love all people, but we don't have to endorse their lifestyle. So see our share how you see those those elements working together.
6: Yes. So For me, as a Christian, I don't see a fundamental conflict between saying to my LGBTQ friends, I love you, and yet I'm not able to fully endorse um, your sexual identity. But to the LGBTQ community, their sexual identity is so tied to who they are that they cannot reconcile how I can purport to, you know, love, accept, and validate them, and yet not fully agree or promote, um, you know, their sexual identities and lifestyles. And so because they're unable to reconcile that, they've essentially said, your words about love and acceptance are completely worthless um, because you believe that, one, God created male and female, and two, God designed sex to be between a marriage between a male and a female. We're going to take that as invalidating to us and trying to erase our identity and we're going to call you a bigot and hater because there's no way you can possibly love us and still say these things.
0: Isabella Chow here on The Intersection, commenting on the number six story, the number six topic of 2018, Christians on campuses experiencing religious liberty suppression. Well, you are tuned into the Intersection Podcast, a special edition of the podcast highlighting the top 10 topics of 2018. You can learn more about the Intersection by going to meetinghouseonline.info or by visiting the programming section at faithradio.org. You'll find a link to the Media Center through which you could listen to or download full conversations with recent guests. On The Intersection Podcast. You can also subscribe to The Intersection and have it delivered to your podcast receiving software including iTunes each week. Two blogs are accessible. One is The Three with three stories of relevance to the Christian community. The other is The Front Room with devotional thoughts and commentary from The Meeting House. You can also follow me on Twitter and access the Meeting House Facebook page. Plus, there's a link to video content. The Intersection podcast is also available through the Faith Radio app. Learn more about downloading it for your smartphone or tablet when you visit faithradio.org. The Meeting House website address is meetinghouseonline.info. We continue now with our coverage of the top 10 topics of 2018. The number five story, the attempt to redefine the biblical perspective on homosexuality as well as other gender issues, continued to proliferate within the evangelical church. One example was the Revoice Conference, which catered to celibate gay individuals who want to continue to identify as gay. Stephen Black is with First Stone Ministries. It's one of the organizations that presents a different message to gay people, the message of freedom in Christ and identifying with him rather than their so-called gay identity. The group's head, Stephen Black, offered perspective on the infiltration of the LGBT agenda in the church.
7: The uh, effectiveness survey that First Stone put out was um, conducted... In 2015 2016 we had 1200 client folders and um, in 2012 when Alan Chambers began to say that nobody changes um, made us go uh, ask the question well where are all the people that we've served over the last 25 years and we wanted to find out where they were bottom line is we were able to get this survey, contact 500 people of that. Almost half uh, were able to fill out the survey. Getting anybody to fill out a survey that long is, is pretty difficult. But we got 185, and it showed conclusively that 72 to 73 percent found lasting freedom, went on to live lives fully dedicated to Christ without any kind of labels.
0: And just looking at some of the different areas that you uh, had response, 88% of participants in First Stone Ministries over 25 years of support group ministry reported finding lasting freedom. 66 to 88% of survey respondents who participated in support groups believed it was very helpful to their spiritual growth. Now, these percentages vary because of different types of support groups. But even for those that may not have experienced the the total transformation, to me, Stephen, that doesn't sound like that there's reason to give up and seek another path.
7: Well, I wouldn't either, especially since the Scripture teaches otherwise. Yeah. When, uh, you know, Paul says things like uh, comparing it to an Olympic race, you know, in 1 Corinthians Corinthians chapter 9. And when he he compares it to Tim and, and Paul talking to Timothy about comparing this to a war and being a good soldier. And then the revelation itself talking about that those who get to go to heaven and taste of the things of heaven are overcomers. So, this has always been about a faith that is prevailing and in even in john's epistle uh in uh chapter Five, he says, "This is what overcomes the world it's a It's a faith that is prevailing a faith that can, that is consistent." Not, you know, a super faith that gets what you want, but a faith that allows you to be consistent in a devoted relationship with Jesus Christ. And what happens is, people don't understand this, is that over time, if you really do cleanse yourself and separate yourself from these, these honestly, these inputs of, of sexual brokenness into your life... The sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit called the Spirit of Grace, grace, actually changes the internal world. The problem with, like, these Exodus and Revoice people is I know for a fact that most of these people still continue to dabble with pornography in their own confessions. They continue to still go into places where there is a a spirit and and, uh, an atmosphere of lust – Well, nobody can go into those kind of atmospheres and and dabbling into sin when you're looking at pornography and fantasy and expect there to be change. And yet they would have you believe, and this is the ironic thing, is they would have you believe that their homosexual sexual behavior is equal to eating a piece of shrimp. And or that their that their their longings and their de- their desires on this side of the cross is fixed, so God must bless them, and that the God of the creation, the God of the universe, that has made trillions and billions and billions and billions and trillions of of galaxies out there and within our own galaxy, you know trillion ten trillion stars cannot help a person with their internal Uh, organization and desires called orientation. And I beg to differ, and Paul did too. He said in the last days, men would have a form of godliness, so they have religion, but they deny the power. And so they're denying the power of grace to do this transformative work, and actually the scripture warns us and tells us right there in 2 Timothy 3 to withdraw ourselves from people that teach such things. So this is where we're at in the church.
0: Stephen Black of First Stone Ministries here on The Intersection commenting on the number five story involving the LGBT infiltration into the evangelical church. We move on now to the number four story of 2018. The topic of justice has become a hot button issue among Christian leaders. A group of influencers decided there should be an effort to define such matters biblically. They crafted and over 10,000 people signed the statement on social justice and the gospel. One of the signers is Calvin Beisner of the Cornwall Alliance for the Stewardship of Creation. He released a book contrasting biblical justice and so-called social justice. Here now is some of his analysis.
8: Well, I think the contrast is very stark. And let's approach this the way, uh, the way bank tellers are taught to know the difference between uh, real and counterfeit uh, currency. Uh, they're taught to do it by feel, and they don't do a lot of feeling of counterfeit. They feel the real stuff, and they feel it so much that eventually their fingers get to the point where (laughs) if they touch a counterfeit bill, they know it right away, not because they've studied a lot of counterfeit, but because they've studied the real thing. So let's start with the meaning of justice in the Scriptures. And my many years of study on that, uh, looking carefully at the context of every single use of every Hebrew and Greek word related to justice or righteousness or right and so on, Uh, my, my study led me to the conclusion that biblical justice means rendering impartially and proportionally to everyone his due in accord with the righteous standard, the just standard, that is God's moral law. So we get four criteria there. Impartiality is the first one. That is, all laws have to apply to everybody alike. You don't play any favorites. Nobody is exempt from the law. Nobody has special privileges. All the laws must apply exactly alike to everybody. If you have an income tax, you have the same percentage of income from, uh, that is taxed. Uh, you don't you don't use a progressive tax rate. Uh, if you if you have uh, a law saying that. That if you steal, uh, you have to pay back what you stole plus 20%. Well, that has to be uh, applied to everybody, no matter how rich or how poor that person is. So uh, impartiality is the first criterion. Second criterion of justice is proportionality. That is, uh, we have a saying for it in English, the punishment must fit the crime. Uh, You don't have capital punishment for petty theft. But neither do you have a slap on the wrist for first-degree murder. The punishment must fit the crime. The reward must fit the the, the performance. And so that's proportionality. The third criterion is that you're rendering what is due. It's what someone has earned. It's not. It's not uh, something contrary to what someone's earned. Uh, that's grace. Or it may instead be oppression, if you, if you treat someone uh, badly who has earned good treatment. Or if you treat someone well who's earned bad treatment, that's grace. So there is rendering what is due. And then finally, there's conformity to the standard of God's moral law. Where do we learn what is due? Where do we learn what is right conduct and wrong conduct? Where do we re- learn what are proper rewards and punishments? We learn them from God's moral law in Scripture, summarized, of course, in the Ten Commandments and the Two Great Commandments, and yet there's much more of the moral law spread through Scripture that can teach us more about that. So that's real justice, rendering impartially and proportionally to everyone his due according to the righteous standard of God's moral law. Now, social justice, in contrast tends to just demand that you try to equalize all the conditions of everybody in the society, no matter what they do, no matter how hard they work, no matter how how productively they work, no matter what their behavior, somehow or other you need to equalize or at least make the the conditions of the people in your society more equal than whatever they are at the moment and it also tends to uh, to uh, to focus not on individuals but on groups when we read in Romans 2:6 that God renders to everyone his due that's individuals right but social justice tends to say tends to say we need to we need to treat people as groups and this is where identity politics comes
0: mm-hmm. from yes, yes and
8: that overlooks the differences in behavior of the people in the groups.
0: Cal Beisner of the Cornwall Alliance here on The Intersection, commenting regarding the number four story with Christian leaders engaging in debate over the topic of social justice. Moving on now to the number three topic of 2018, two high-profile individuals who have been persecuted for their Christian faith were released. One was Pakistani woman Aja Bibi. She was facing a death sentence under the country's draconian blasphemy laws. She was released by the country's high court and is seeking asylum in another country because her life is in danger. David Curry of Open Doors USA visited with me following Aja's release. Well, the
2: blasphemy law in Pakistan, and there are other countries that have it as well, is a a form of vigilante justice by extremist Muslims who can who can accuse anybody of uh, blasphemy against Mohammed. In, in Asya Bibi's case, she was at a well, uh, she's a very impoverished person, illiterate, she was at a well trying to get a drink of water, offered it to a Muslim, and that was uh, started a conversation and an exchange in which Asya Bibi made clear she was a Christian, and someone said, you have blasphemed Mohammed. So essentially, her crime was claiming Jesus as her Lord and Savior. Supreme Court last last week that released her, the, the law that I've read a good chunk of the statement from the Supreme Court, the law is solid on letting her go. There are very inconsistent reports that she said anything that would be even considered offensive to Islam. And uh, there's uh, there's just no call. Co- corroboration of the story of the accusation she should have never spent any time in jail but that's the problem with blasphemy laws that's why we need to raise raise our voices on this and get these overturned continue to put international pressure on Pakistan Sudan other countries there are 68 countries that have blasphemy laws on the books not all of them enforce them but we need to get all of these repealed for release for everyone, but particularly for Christians.
0: And I was going to ask you about the, the climate where you have these blasphemy laws. It sounds like that there are a number of countries that are predominantly Muslim countries that are using these laws to silence anyone that would express a different view. And these types of laws, as we've seen in the Aja Bibi case, really place quite a bit of pressure and come down on Christians, it does seem to me.
2: Well, absolutely. It's primarily being used against Christians. There are people who've died and been put to death. Unfortunately, in many cases, when somebody is even accused of blasphemy, mob violence breaks out and they lose their life before it can even go to trial. So it it needs to be repealed, and, and I'm proud of the Supreme Court of Pakistan for standing up for this. It puts their life in danger. Her life is in danger. We're really hoping that the State Department and others can help get her out of the country as soon as possible because there's been protests and we expect um, there could be violence. We're hoping the Pakistani government will continue to protect soft targets like churches and in areas where uh, Christians are living because extremists are going to use this as a reason to attack.
0: That was David Curry of Open Doors USA with regard to Aja Bibi's release. Also, an American pastor who had been imprisoned in Turkey on terrorism charges was released in the aftermath of pressure from the U.S. government. His name is Andrew Brunson. Prior to his release, I spoke with Liberty McArthur of The Stream.
9: Well, um, just a brief overview. He has been in Turkey for over 20 years, pastoring a church there um, with his wife. And he was taken into custody in 2016, actually. So in uh, in October of 2016, so almost two years ago. Um, And it was after they had the big coup attempt in Turkey, and he was charged uh, with being a part of a terrorist group, the Kurdistan Workers' Party, um, accused of, you know, trying to uh, instigate uh, unrest and violence against President Erdogan over there. Um, and, And some of the charges in the indictment that the government later released are just, you know, according to experts far smarter than I am who are actually involved over there with the case are absolutely crazy. For instance, you know, texts from his church members saying that they can't be at worship service or the fact that he was translating Bible um, and, or the fact that he posed for a, a, a picture with a certain individual, you know, and um, in the constitution in Turkey, they're supposed to have religious freedom, but a lot of experts are saying, especially since the latest coup attempt, they're really clamping down on a lot of those rights. Um, that individuals should have, and the Turkish government says it's not about um, Pastor Brunson's faith, but then in the indictment, it says that he was dividing and separating Turkey by means of Christianization, and so it seems, and he denies, of course, all of these charges that he's been involved in terrorist activities against Turkey, but according to reporters who are there in Turkey, the hearings have been very one-sided with um, only witnesses from the prosecution being allowed. Uh, and so a lot of people had hoped that since, you know, the president and some senators and other government officials in the U.S. have been aware of Pastor Brunson's case, and they were working out a deal. And this last hearing that happened last Wednesday, maybe he would be released, but that didn't happen. Um, he, the, the The judge did not... Released at Pastor Brunson, and he will have another hearing on um, October 12th.
0: Liberty McCarter of the stream with some comments relative to the imprisonment of Andrew Brunson, who was released later in the year. We move on now to the number two story, the number two topic of 2018. Last year on the National Day of Prayer at the White House, the president announced more federal action designed to reinforce religious freedom rights. It's a follow-up to an executive order issued at a 2017 National Day of Prayer event. And the Justice Department... In the year announced the formation of a Religious Liberty Task Force and the State Department held a religious freedom conference. President Trump signed a bill that protected religious freedom for persecuted minorities, including Christians, in Iraq and Syria. I had the opportunity to talk with Jeremy Dice of First Liberty against the backdrop of an instance in which a Bible was replaced in a display honoring prisoners of war and those missing in action. He discussed dynamics of religious freedom and the Trump administration. Here's Jeremy Dice now. This is an
10: unfortunate circumstance that we see far too often repeated and frankly ties into the announcement this week by the the Attorney General about his religious liberty task force. Namely that the, the Department of Justice doesn't seem to have received a memo from the AG a couple months ago about religious liberty and the guidance that he offered with that. And so you, you see this one particular group that is going around sending these somewhat uh, serious sounding letters that suggests that having a, a Bible as a part of a passive display is somehow an establishment of religion. Uh, and, and folks, if, if you're not familiar with what this looks like, this is a, a missing man table, as I think they're sometimes referred to, or the MIA table that is often set up there, to remember those men and women who have fallen and yet we've not had them return to our home country. Uh, in fact, we're seeing that in the news even, even now, about how men and women from the Korean War are being repatriated to the United States right now. Ah, uh, but you know, th- this is the kind of thing that we're facing. That you have a, a kind of a table setting set up there, and, and then as a part of that setting is is a Bible traditionally to uh, kind of represent the the faith that has been so dear, especially to so many uh, prisoners of war, uh, while they've been held in captivity. And yet, because that Bible just simply sits there in passive display as a part of this remembrance of those who are still missing in action, uh, that apparently is too much for some groups, and they've got to to. Uh, to, uh, to, to, to express their vim and vigor against uh, the United States Air Force against this. That wouldn't be a big deal. People complain about a lot of stuff and, and a lot of meaningless things, uh, quite frankly, and, and they, they, they put a lot of pomp and circumstance behind that. But it's a big deal here because now you've got military commanders who should know better that are scared to death of these uh, letters that mean really very little. And you see them now yanking these, uh, these, these books, uh, the, the, the Bibles, off of these uh, MIA tables. Uh, that, that's, that's silly. It doesn't need to happen. The law does not require that the, uh, the state show such hostility to missing man tables that they have to remove the Bible or, or things like that. But it also shows how silly it is, because what are they doing? They're replacing them with this, quote, book of faith. Well, I don't even know what that is. Uh, let alone w- what it means for, for this table and the future of it all, and why it would even satisfy people who don't want any book of faith on a table like this. So, um, you know, look, it, to to all those base commanders that are out there, those men and women in the armed forces that may be listening, you don't need to worry about this. Leave the MIA tables alone. Let us uh, remember our men and women who are still missing in action in a way that, uh, that our comrades, their comrades, wish to be remembered.
0: You have this announcement this week by the AG's office. So what what's the significance of this?
10: It's very significant. Number one, let's not miss the obvious. I, I don't recall any attorney general in our nation's history holding a summit on religious liberty. All right, so that the fact that it happened in and of itself is extremely significant and, and I think says a ton of things. You know, a, a an individual or an organization that is devoted to one thing will spend time on that one thing. And I think you can see right now the summit in which the AG has put together here uh, is something that I think expresses his own personal and, uh, and, and his organizational's commitment to religious liberty. Well, But let's back up also. Number one, it's important that we point out that, yes, the AG has held this summit, the first of its kind, I think, in our nation's history. That's huge. Secondly, let, let's back up to see where this came from. This is really growing out of a directive by the Trump administration or President Trump himself. You'll recall that about a year or a little bit more than that, uh, he put out an executive order on religious liberty and informed his attorney general and that directed him to develop guidelines in which his departments, his, his agencies, the cabinet members would be providing uh, instruction on how they support and defend religious liberty within their own orbit of, 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 um, of action. And that's exactly what the attorney general did. He 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 obeyed the, the commander in chief there, the the directive of the president. Developed those guidelines, and I think by October of last year, put those out to all the heads of the departments. Uh, and so those were sent around. Those have been in the federal register now for uh, coming up on a year. And many agencies have begun to adopt those and implement those. But I think it's been recognized that uh, that not all, not all agencies have have gotten the memo. I alluded earlier in, in this interview that Secretary Mattis doesn't seem to have received the memo. Uh, we've got all kinds of issues going on in the military right now as it concerns religious liberty, whether it's those missing man tables or cases like uh, Chaplain Scott Squires that we can talk about. Uh, my hope is that by the creation of this task force, whose stated purpose is to institutionalize the enforcement of religious liberty by the, uh, the, the federal government into all aspects of the executive branch, my hope is that this task force as chaired by uh, attorney general sessions uh, they will make a quick trip to the department of defense and remind the uh, the federal government over there that our men and women of the armed forces sacrifice many things when they go into the military but the religious liberty is not one of them.
0: Jeremy Dice the First Liberty here on The Intersection Podcast. We are about to hear about the number one story of 2018. This is a special edition of The Intersection with the top 10 topics of 2018. Let's go back over what we've heard thus far on this edition of the podcast. In the number 10 position, the military transgender policy and some of the developments on that front. Number nine, a California bill affecting counseling to over- Overcome same-sex attraction was pulled at the last minute. Number eight, Christians continuing to be censored on the internet, national religious broadcasters fighting back. In the number seven position, election 2018, including pro-life voters making a statement. In the number six position, Christians on campuses experiencing religious liberty suppression, Number five, the LGBT agenda infiltrating the church. Number four, Christian leaders engaging in debate over social justice. Number three, persecuted Christians Aja Bibi and Andrew Brunson were released. In the number two position, the Trump administration continuing to show support for religious freedom. And in the number one position... It was apparent in the 2016 election that the prospect of U.S. Supreme Court judges who had rule consistent with a biblical perspective holding to pro-life and pro-religious freedom concepts was a motivating factor for many Christians. Jack Phillips is the owner of Colorado's Masterpiece Cake Shop. A number of years ago, he had declined to provide a cake for a ceremony celebrating gay marriage. He was disciplined by a state civil rights body and penalized by a state appeals court, a ruling the state Supreme Court allowed to stand. He then appealed to the Supreme Court of the United States, which ruled in his favor. Here now with some comments relative to the masterpiece cake shop decision of the high court, it's Travis Weber of Family Research Council commenting on the number one topic of 2018.
11: Yeah, I think the most important point of the decision is that the Supreme Court has clearly told government actors, whether um, commission administrators such as those at the lower level in this case or state judges, federal judges, any government actor really, Uh, clearly told them uh, that under the Free Exercise Clause of the First Amendment, it is unacceptable, it is a violation of that constitutional protection to specifically target religion, to marginalize religion, to treat religion as less than equal on the plane of uh, considerations and ideas when it comes to the, uh, the, the, the assessment of rights in the public square. The court, throughout its opinion, uh, featured language such as this majority opinion, seven with seven votes in agreement on that, that opinion, that ruling. Um, the court featured a lot of language along on this theme, um, pointing out that you cannot have animus against religion, you cannot dedicate religious beliefs. You cannot um, exclude them from a reasonable consideration. Justice Kennedy, in in penning the majority opinion, said, uh, to describe a man's faith as one of the most despicable pieces of rhetoric that people can use is to disparage his religion in at least two distinct ways, by describing it as despicable and also by characterizing it as merely rhetorical, something unsubstantial and even insincere. So this is important because so much of what we hear in the culture is that religion is just an excuse for discrimination, excuse for something else. It's an excuse to to do what you want. Uh, It's not taken seriously, and, and this will directly impact this aspect in terms of government actors, and I think it sends a message to the culture that this is unacceptable. So this point is very significant when we look at the masterpiece ruling.
0: Where does the ruling fall short, and where is there work to be done now?
11: Yeah, so so it really fails to grapple with the free speech claim. It doesn't rule on it. Uh, going into our argument, many people thought the free speech claim was the more prominent claim brought by Jack Phillips, basically saying that, look, you're compelling me to speak against my conscience by forcing me to create a cake that I don't want to create. Uh, there is a strong doctrine of, com- of pro- prohibiting compelled speech under the First Amendment's free speech protections, um, the court didn't rule on this, though. I think, you know, there's a there's a case to be made that, that Jack Phillips is forced to create expression against his conscience here, uh, but the court didn't rule on this. This is going to continue to come up. Justice Thomas, in his concurring opinion, made note of strong free speech protections which apply to situations like this. I thought it was interesting and, and good that Justice Thomas, in that opinion, pointed to the hurley case from the 90s in which the supreme court unanimously said that the compelled speech doctrine protects a parade organizer who doesn't want to include a message in his parade one entity in his parade against the parade's theme in this case it was a pro-lgbt parade float that would have contradicted the message of the parade so this is analogous somewhat to this case and and um glad to see Justice Thomas point this out as instructive to these types of matters going forward. Obviously, it didn't apply in this case, but the free speech, compelled speech issues going to have to be dealt with. I think secondarily, although the court ruled for free exercise for Jack Phillips here, it did so in a way which said, look, in this case, free exercise was violated. It didn't really broadly change free exercise doctrine. So it clarified some lines and solidified some things. But the current free exercise laws on the books, which are a lower standard than the RIFRA, the Religious Freedom Restoration Act and statute, those can still come into play and, and result in religious freedom rulings against people in situations like Jack's. Um, I think you know the court's clarification on prohibiting religious animus, religious hostility that I commented on earlier today, really, it's applicable legally, but it's more significantly perhaps applicable culturally to the cultural conversation, really slapping down Um, uh, expression like we saw from Senators Feinstein and Sanders when nominees, Russell Vaught and Amy Barrett, were put up uh, for nomination and questioned in the Senate and their religious beliefs targeted. That type of thing, the court is saying, look, it's unacceptable here at the hands of government actors. And I think this really applies and flows out to, to broader society. So the ruling is applicable and significant in some ways, but there are some areas it, it doesn't address, and those are going to have to be addressed going forward.
0: And there you have it, Travis Weber of the Family Research Council with comments relative to the Masterpiece Cake Shop decision from the U.S. Supreme Court, the number one topic of 2018. Well, thanks for joining me for this special edition of The Intersection Podcast with the Top 10 Topics of 2018. The Intersection is a weekly production of The Meeting House, and you can find out more when you go to meetinghouseonline.info. You'll find a link to the Download Center or the Media Center marked "Media." Meeting Meeting House On Demand, through which you can listen to or download full conversations with recent guests on The Intersection Podcast. You can also subscribe to The Intersection and have it delivered to your podcast receiving software. The Intersection Podcast is also available through the Faith Radio app. Learn more when you visit faithradio.org. Also through The Meeting House homepage, there are links to two blogs. One is The Front Room with devotional thoughts and commentary from The Meeting House program. And there's the three with three stories of relevance to the Christian community. You can also follow me on Twitter and access the Meeting House Facebook page. And there is a link to video content. Again, that website address is meetinghouseonline.info or visit the programming section at faithradio.org. Thanks for joining me for this edition of The Intersection Podcast. I'm Bob Crittenden.